Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Bill Pulsifer led the International League with 63 strikeouts and two shutouts. His 3.14 earned run average, 10th best in the International League. It's a step up in class today. Pulsifer takes on the Astros, who will send Doug Graveck to the mound on a sunny, glorious day for baseball. It's the Mets and Astros. Settle in and enjoy the game this afternoon on Sports Channel. The pitcher's mound at Shea Stadium has been the starting point for some of baseball's greatest careers. One player was known simply as the franchise, and he led the team to its earliest success. Another, Nolan Ryan, started his career here and went on to greater glory elsewhere. The third keyed the Mets' resurgence into a baseball powerhouse a decade ago. Today, another youngster takes the ball and heads to that mound for the first time. It's a gorgeous day at Shea Stadium, an afternoon game for the Mets and the Astros, the second of this three-game series, and the big story, the focus here at Shea is on a young left-hander. And there's Bill Pulsifer warming up in the Met bullpen. The story here at Shea Stadium is this a new beginning for the New York Mets. Hello again, everybody. I'm Fran Healy along with Ralph Kiner. Rusty Staub will join us a little bit later on. And as I mentioned, the story is Bill Pulsifer. Ralph, he is a kid with good stuff, but is it unfair to focus on him the way we are? No, it's not unfair. Okay. You come here to play, you come here to get to the major leagues, and you got to pay your dues. And uh, if you can meet the challenge, uh, you ride on to great glory, and it's a wonderful way to make a living. And he's no different than anybody else. He's a guy that wanted to be a major league ball player, and now he gets his first chance, and uh, this is what he's uh, gone all of his life for. And those are his numbers in Norfolk. As you can see, six wins this year. He had 14 wins and was a dominating pitcher for the Binghamton Ball Club last year. But getting back to the way he's coming into the big leagues, it's unusual because usually you can get into the major leagues in, in a somewhat quieter fashion. You want to sneak in. Yes, you words. do. <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, it's different with everybody. Uh, Willie Mays came into the major leagues, and he was heralded as a, one of the great young stars. He went, I think, 0 for 11. He finally got his first hit against Warren Spahn. Uh, Mickey Mantle came in the same way. Bob Feller came in out of high school. He was still in high school when he made the major leagues. First game he pitched and he struck out 15 batters. So, I mean, this is what it's all about. You're here to play, and this is it. And this is his chance. And sure, he's going to be nervous. There's no doubt about it. It's good that Ralph only mentioned those Hall of Famers. Well, stay with us. We, talk, we talked about Bill Pulsifer. When we come back, we'll get to see him pitch. back and joining me former Mets pitcher prospect one of the uh, trio of Generation K joining us we haven't done a Mets alumni report in a while and Bill was kind enough to come on and Bill welcome to the program it's been a while I remember talking to you oh when you were with the Somerset Patriots uh, a lot of the fans like to catch up and know what former Mets are doing so what's your life brought to you now I know you're out on Long Island I think you're doing pitching lessons what's Bill Pulse for up to right now yeah, I, uh, I'm out in East Riches, Long Island, and uh, thanks for having me on the, on the podcast. 
Um, I work road construction on the highways. I'm, I'm one of the guys out there messing up your traffic on the way uh, to and from work. Um, I'm a traffic control supervisor. Um, I also do give pitching lessons. That's usually, you know, between, uh, I want to say Thanksgiving and then the high school season starts is really when the season for lessons is. Um, and, uh, ra- you know, raised my kids and uh, my kids are now growing up and out here with me and my wife, Michelle, and just being Long Islanders. I, well, as someone who's out on Long Island, it's a great place to live. And next time I'm stuck in traffic, I'm going to have to call you up and say, Bill, what are you doing to the LIE over here? But uh, your son's a pitcher, too. Similar profile to you. If I saw him on Baseball Reference, lefty, same height, a little skinnier, a little thinner. But, uh, you know, obviously he's young. What's uh, Is he profiled as uh, a prospect, and how is it working with him? Uh, I think he's uh, he had a very successful uh, high school career, uh, All-State a couple of times, won a state title, was a small school All-American and uh, his senior year. And then he went on to Queens and played at, Queen, uh, played at Stony Brook for a year, uh, wasn't the best fit, so he ended up at Queens and had a, had a pretty successful college career. They actually ended up winning their first conference for the first time since 98, and um he uh, he's a little undersized and a little under velocity for today's game, but he's actually in the midst of uh, there's a there's a facility tread athletics that works with pitchers with strength and conditioning and velocity training. And he's doing that now. He still has the dream, but I think that he's a little a little far away at this point. But you know, you hope for the best and you hope that his hard work pays off and he can uh, can get an, uh, an opportunity. Absolutely, Bill Pulse for joining me, former Mets uh, re, you know starter and reliever. And Bill, your story. Everybody talks about the big leagues, the Tommy John surgery, the challenges and whatnot. But, uh, you know, as I look at, and this is the amazing part, knowing the the game today, you you saw the development. Obviously, you have a son in the development process. Pitching the amount of innings that you did out of high school, not only you, Isringhausen, Wilson, the three guys that, you know, obviously didn't fulfill the potential that the media and the fans put on you. It's amazing. Well over 200 innings. I think in a couple of years, you pitched well over 400 innings. I made a joke. You know, they put you. They put the management team up on a military tribunal at this point. And you know, you had some progressive guys in that front office. I remember talking to Jim Duquette years ago. Go look what you. You know, you know what you did to these guys. And you looking back, you know, you didn't realize it as a young pitcher. I'm sure at the time, a lot could have been done better. And I'm wondering, as you see some of the ways they develop pitchers today, which is criticized, do you think that could have helped you? Well, I think that obviously our stories and my story definitely changed the way that the game is played. Um, I definitely think I'll have an indelible uh, impression on the game, whether my name is used or our names are used uh, for way, the way that the game changed. But, yeah, definitely. You know, I always tell the story. Of Nolan Ryan did from his first 200 innings until he was 25 years old, and he pitched into his 40s and uh, not taking anything away from Nolan Ryan because obviously he was a unicorn and a, and a special individual. But um, it would have been interesting to see if I didn't throw – 218 innings as a 20-year-old or 219 innings as a 21-year-old um, to see how things might have been different because obviously for me with the injury and then coming back it kind of changed. But um, I, like you said, I wouldn't, I didn't know any better. I, I figured that I was on my path and I wanted the ball as much as I possibly could get it, and you're gonna have to rip it out of my hands and. Uh, there was always this thing about minor league pitchers need 500 innings before they are quote unquote ready to pitch in the major leagues. And that was the older and older school way of thinking. So I think that 
with the way that the Mets at the time had struggled a little bit. The Yankees were kind of rounding into form that they wanted to get those 500 innings as soon as possible. And uh, that's the way that things went. You know, you didn't have many bad outings. So even if you had a bad outing, you were throwing seven innings and maybe giving up four runs. So you threw 110, 115 pitches. But um, definitely the game has changed. And I think I have a lot to do with why the game game changed. And you pitched the no-hitter in double-A. I think people forget that. Uh, That was a great B Mets team. I remember going up, going up to Binghamton, and they had some kind of ceremony, you know, uh, for an anniversary many years ago. You or Donia's Isringhausen, uh, Jay Payton, I think, was on that team. A lot of future big leaguers. Great Edgardo team. Edgar Alfonso. Couple of things with that. Yeah, yeah. A couple of things with that. Hey, talk. It was a heck of a ball. Uh, heck of a ball club. Um, great group of guys. We, the majority of those guys, had played together the year before in, uh, in A ball on our way, on our, kind of our path up. Um, we had lost in the finals uh, in the Florida State League and kind of felt like we knew that the next year we had some unfinished business and we're lucky enough to uh, we won 94 games out of 140 regular season games in the minor league season which is unheard of and had a tremendous year and I had a great playoff run uh, and at the time the strike was going on so it was the only baseball going on so Dallas Green was up there to watch us play and I threw a complete game in the first game of the semifinal series with 14 strikeouts and then was lucky enough to throw a, uh, a no-hitter against the Harrisburg Expos um, in, the, in the final series. So pretty pretty cool and uh, one of the greatest summers of my life and a great, great, great memories uh, of playing for the D-Men. Do, do you think you guys playing together in the minor leagues and kind of all going up and really coming up at the same time? I know it didn't work out for all of you, but... Sometimes I think that helps as you guys grow together that you get to the big leagues and you've experienced some stuff together. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that, you know, on your way up, coming through high school and all that, the American Legion ball, you get used to playing with the same group of guys or core group of guys for years and years and years. So as a minor league, young minor leaguer, doing kind of moving up together with a core group of guys, uh, it just kind of feels natural. You know, it feels like this is the way it's always supposed to have been and that's how it's always been for you, so... You uh, you just feel like it's normal, and uh, and then winning obviously makes it that much better. Dallas Green was uh, you know, a successful manager, but he was also a tough manager on young players. Do you think it was hard for you to come up to the big leagues with a team that, as you said, with the Yankees and what they were doing with the doldrums, and and still close enough to the '80s where that that expectation of excellence was still kind of tied to the Mets? Um, was it tough playing for an old school manager like Dallas? Did that play into maybe some of your your use? I was a I was a young generation X punk kid or whatever. But it, when it came to playing baseball, part I was really more of an old school uh, historian, loving the game and playing the game kind of the right way. And I think Dallas saw that even through all of the big mouth and braggadocious and all that stuff that I had going on when I was a kid, young kid come through. Uh, and I think he and I actually got along quite, quite well. You know, I, he, I never had a problem with Dallas green at all. And unfortunately in 96, I didn't get a chance to, to pitch when Izzy and Wilson were done having their first full year in the big leagues before Dallas ended up getting fired. And they brought Bobby in uh, to, to get to give him more, you know, I mean, obviously looking back, throwing 131 pitches your first start in big leagues and 122 in your second start. Maybe he could have done something 
better or different in that. But as a person and as a manager and as a man, I, I have the most respect to Dallas Green, and uh, I'll, I'll never say a bad word about him. What do you remember about June seventeenth, nineteen ninety-five? Is it still very fresh in your memory? Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a four fifty-five meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Uh, yes, it, sometimes it feels like it was just right around the corner, and other times it feels like it was three or four or five lifetimes ago. But, um... Obviously, it was a culmination of your, your lifetime's work up to that point. Obviously, not long at 21 years old, but anything you'd ever dreamed about or wanted to do, and especially being able to do it for your favorite team in the, in the stadium that you, you know, grew, watched growing up as a kid and that your favorite players had played on. It was obviously a, a very special day for, to be able to go out there and, uh, and be on the Shea Stadium mound and say that I was a Major League Baseball player. You've been uh, back to City Field recently for Mental Health Awareness Day. You've been very open about some of your struggles with anxiety. And you know what? You know, as someone who's married to a, a therapist and who's in the, the field, I, I understand it a little bit. But back in the 90s, that's not something – that was taboo. That was a tough situation. I know one of your, your teammates, Pete Harnish, struggled a little bit with it, and it wasn't received well by the media, not well by the fans, and maybe not well by the powers that be in baseball – and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, knowing how the world is today, I'm sure that could have helped you a little bit. And you've seen some players go on the injured list now for, you know, anxiety, yeah. depression, or, you know, just performance anxiety, if it's simple as that. Well, I think that, um, I mean, I remember, in fact, page of the news, Newsday or one of the papers with big, huge letters, Prozac, yep. when I came out and said that I, you know, started taking some medication to help me with my anxiety. Right. And, uh <laughs> It's a shame because you look back and you think about all the players that have been come through that might have lost their chance or an organization loses their chance to have a player that is capable of doing things that just, just they can't figure out exactly what's going on or weren't willing to figure out what was going on or just felt like, oh, this guy's mentally weak or soft or whatever the heck it is. And I know one thing, I'm not soft or mentally weak. There's just times where if your serotonin levels are firing <laughs> – out of control, you've got no control of it. So you can tell yourself to calm down and just relax and be a man and all that all you want. It doesn't mean it's gonna you know change anything. So I just look back at all the all the players that have gone through these kinds of things and got told the wrong things or got treated incorrectly and you just feel for them. You know, me being one of them and that obviously you have to take control of your own your own mental health if it you know, you have to take control of it. Uh, if you need to be on medication or you need to stick on it or you need to be in therapy or whatever it may be, you need to, you know, you need to do yourself the best favor, but you also need people behind you and supporting you and pushing you along in the right way. So I think that, uh, obviously things have changed, um, a lot and I think that they, they're doing a better job and, uh, hopefully as many players will go by the wayside and lose their careers or organizations lose their chances of having a, successful player for, for the team uh, for those types of inju- uh, those types of issues as opposed to blowing your arm out or blowing your knee out or whatever it may be. You uh, obviously had Tommy John surgery after that first year, and that's a tough – I mean, everybody thinks it's an oil change. I mean, and a lot of pitchers come back. It's not an oil change. You came back. I, you know, I've read you said you struggled a little bit with your off-speed pitches, your curveball. 
Talk about that. I mean, the the rehab, you know, what it did to you. And then you're getting shuttled between the bullpen, the rotation. You have expectations. All three of you guys were hurt. A lot thrown at you coming back, you know, after that and doing it, obviously, in a Mets uniform for a bit. Yeah, well, um, you know, you uh, you never want to be injured. And uh, you hope that the surgeries work. And obviously, to a, a very good extent, because I was able to pitch for a long time after having surgery that you can come back and, and throw the same and have the same stuff. Like you said, I, my curveball was never quite what it was prior to prior to having surgery because I was basically a two-pitch pitcher coming up through the minor leagues. I threw a, a fastball that moved all over the place and a really crazy, wicked curveball. And I uh, wasn't able to throw the curveball quite as well as I did, so you'd have to then start reinventing yourself a little bit. And then they decided that because of the way I threw – that was why I got hurt. So we need to change the way that you threw and start, and as opposed to throwing fastballs that move from the left to the right, we're going to start trying to throw fastballs that move from the right to the left and throwing sinker balls and just didn't fit for me. You know, right. it wasn't a fit. So trying to totally rebrand who your number one prospect was and the reason why he was good was because of the way that you threw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always said, and I said it, I was like, well, I don't know why we're changing. Like if I, my arm works for the next 10 years and it blows out again, we all win. You know, I, so I look back and like, I just think that was a terrible idea. Just let me come back and try to throw the way I threw and hopefully the, the modern medicine and science will stay together for long enough for us all to, to make some money and win some games and, and whatever else it could have been. But, uh, not easy. I don't feel like I ever threw the same. And I think the tinkering around with, trying to make make me throw differently at the time when the thing that was made me good was, was then taken away from me. It's, I think that was a, a bad, bad idea. Hey, absolutely. And they do a little bit of that, you know, a lot of round peg with hitters and pitchers in square holes today. Right. Um, you know, 92 to 94, curveball. It's I know by today's standards it's not sexy, but, you know, give me guys that could get the ball over the plate, uh, could throw strikes. I, I think – and Keith Hernandez talks about this all the time on the broadcast – 94 is a lot. It's a lot of velocity. I know 100 is good, but if you know where it's going and you can locate it and you got a good off-speed pitch, maybe we're getting back to that. I know the curveball is kind of coming back, but it's amazing, you know, how simple your repertoire was. You were a top prospect in 1992, but today your repertoire, and you mentioned a little bit with your son and how he, you know, he throws, it's not sexy anymore and it's not desirable by today's game. Well, I will say this. I think that 92-94 at that point in time is a different number today. I'm going to say that. I'm going to say that the guns are different. I, I will say the velocity is, is, is higher than it was in our time. I'm not going to say it's exponentially higher like they say it is or think it is. I just think that you see more of it by more people. I think there was uh, you know, fewer guys that were touching into the high 90s back then. And you look back, I think if you put some of those guys on these guns nowadays, it might have even be reading numbers that Obviously, 92 to 94, if you can locate it and move it around, it's still going to be successful. Um, obviously, it makes it a little easier for the guys to put the bat on the ball. But uh, I think that the game will come back around again a little bit. I think it already is a little bit because uh, a generation of throwers as opposed to pitchers. And people want to, well, why can't they go past five innings? Or why can't they all, why the relievers can only pitch for three hitters? Well, none of, there's not a lot of pitching going on anymore. There's quite a bunch of throwing going on, and obviously the sexy thing is the throwing of the velocity, and that's what gets you recruited, and that's what gets you drafted. But unfortunately, I, I, I believe the lack of amount of coaching that's in the minor league systems of guys that played for 15, 20 years, that's another thing. So 
the guys that are coaching are guys that will analyze numbers that didn't make it out of a ball and didn't pitch very long themselves. So there's just a lack of knowledge. I mean, I had Al freaking Jackson as a pitching coach. Al Jackson pitched for 20 years in the major leagues. If I didn't learn, learn something from him, you know, I wasn't going to learn anything. So I think that that's, you know, between the just throwing the ball hard and then the coaches not being guys that played long enough to really know what pitching is all about, I think that you have more throwers than you have pitchers nowadays. And it's interesting because the the minor leagues in some eyes is now a lab, but you also, you pitched an independent ball, you pitched in different countries as you were trying to get your career back. Those outlets for certain pitchers like who you were trying to get back, you know, who are out of the game, that's almost like where you can hone your craft because you're on your own. You're almost an independent contractor. Uh, how was your experience playing an indie, indie ball in those areas? And, and you did make it back. You made it back to the Cardinals briefly. Uh, you're almost like you're on your own at that point trying to figure stuff out. Yeah, um, obviously the more experience you got, the more you become your own pitching coach. And uh, independent ball, obviously not making a lot of money, not making money at all really, but still playing professional baseball and living the dream and, and getting to work things out and learn things. And I think that's what makes me, um, all of my experience, but one of those things that makes me a good pitching instructor is because of all of the ways that I had to try to do things or try to learn things and just do it from, you know, different areas of the world and, uh, having been and seeing different approaches throughout the game in different places, uh, I wouldn't. I, I don't. I wouldn't get rid of the, the playing in the Atlantic League and, and doing that. I mean, sure, I would have loved to have played in the big leagues for 20 years, but to be able to put on a, a uniform and, and get paid to go play baseball for 20 years is is pretty pretty special. So I I definitely think it helped me learn how to pitch, and uh, I think I have a good idea of how to pitch because of the ability to play for that long and and. Uh, Try so many different try so many different avenues and different ways of doing it. Outside of your big league debut and some of those uh, great uh, memories from Binghamton, are there one or two other memories as we wrap up here that stand out for you from your career, whether it be with the Mets, the Brewers, or somebody else? Well, obviously, you know your first win in the major leagues. It took me to my third start and throwing seven shutout innings against the Marlins and striking out a Hall of Famer and Andre Dawson and striking out Terry Pendleton, somebody that I grew up watching because I had WTBS and, um, you know, just <laughs> being there, man, I was there. You can't take it away from me, but obviously your first big league win is huge. And I know, um, I retired the last guy I ever faced, you know, I won two, three inning last inning, I ever, ever in the major leagues, but, uh, my journey was, was a lot. It was a lot. And, uh, I'm thankful for it, but, um, being able to say I was a New York Met, can't take that away from me and uh less than one percenter you know I, I did things that uh, a lot of people would give give a lot to uh to say they had the opportunity to do it you know baseball is only one part of your life but did it shape who you are now the challenges the highs the lows do you feel like you're a better person now for it or a more uh area diet or a more well-rounded person because of the game well, i'm definitely a more well-rounded person you know I, I i'm not i'm not perfect by any means and i have my issues and have my highs and have my lows but Playing baseball and being able to travel to different countries and different cultures and, and, and you know, just get yourself into it and just become wherever you're at. You're, you're going to be like the people you're going to try to win in Rome, you know. Uh, I think it's definitely made me, I, I know how to speak Spanish. I, you know, I, I had some great experiences and got to meet all kinds of people 
all over in many, many countries. And um, I think that definitely makes me a more well-rounded person, a more accepting person of of a lot of differences of people and uh, understanding that, you know, cultures are different, people are different, but we're all kind of the same in the, in, the, in the good when it comes down to it. So uh, I definitely thank baseball for, for affording me that opportunity to uh, to be able to, to, to see the world a little bit, to meet all different kinds and uh, all different creeds and colors and races and everything. I, I really, I think that's definitely made me a more well-rounded person. Well, Bill, listen, I appreciate some time here on a Sunday. Your your journey is very interesting. A lot, a lot can be learned from fans you who who follow up. Be well, and uh, let's talk soon, my friend. All righty. All right, I appreciate the time. Thank you. That's former Met Bill Pulsifer joining us. Great conversation, interesting stuff. All right, let's take a quick break. Wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. Hope you enjoyed Bill Pulsifer. Some really interesting stuff. Drives me crazy hearing stories about teams changing mechanics, changing the way pitchers went about their craft, the, the way that they got to the big leagues, the way that they got to be top prospects in a team. It's just amazing the bad decisions that we still make today, really. I mean, part of that is with the Yankees hitting coach. We talked about that last week, about how they're trying to, you know, fit round pegs in square holes and make every hitter the same. And it just drives me bananas. It's it's behavior that's gone on since the beginning of time. I don't think it'll change. It's worse than ever now. I think you heard Bill talk a little bit about not really teaching pitching and teaching more velocity. Here's a guy that, you know, 92 to 94, yes, I, I heard his point. Probably in this day and age, he's throwing 97 with a hotter gun and, and so on and so forth. But some good memories by Bill Pulsifer. Yes, it didn't work out Generation K like Mets fans wanted it to. They wanted it to be Smoltz. They wanted it to be Avery. They wanted it to be Glavin. They wanted it to be their version uh, or their version of a big three before there was a big three in the NBA and the Miami Heat kind of coined that. But... um. You know, I, I always like catching up. And I know when I did the poll, not all of you were as into the alumni conversations. These used to go all, on, on a lot more back in the early days, back in the NYBD podcast days. Uh, and I think that they were very popular. And I think there's a segment of the fan base they're popular with. Now there's been some saturation with the proliferation of social media, these former Mets and these alumni segments being done all over the place with other types of outlets that never would do any of that. And as after a while, I know as a fan, you get tired of talking about the same things and talking about Mets history. But I also think it's interesting because if, if you try to dive into these, these interviews and, and, and I try to do them well, I try to get these guys to open up. Uh, I think you can learn something interesting. And I think we learned a couple of things that are already out there about Bill Pulsiver, nothing that you can't read or that wasn't on a, a recent interview with another website, but I think hearing him talk about it, hearing the words, hearing the inflection in his voice, 
I think gives you a lot more nuance and context. So hopefully you uh, you uh, you enjoyed it. I also enjoyed listening to the open of uh, his first start in 1995. Be, you know the conversation between Fran Healy and Ralph Kiner. Man, Ralph was no nonsense. Listen, this is New York. Expectations are part of it. Bob Feller, Mickey Mantle, you know Daryl Strawberry, so on and so forth. A really no nonsense. I mean a different type of analysis basically hitch up your pants and get it done and uh, that really tied into some of the conversation we had about mental health and and look you know whatever you believe about it um you know that's not for me to judge but it is a component of sports of the athlete that was pushed under the rug that should have been a bigger part of the game you know there have been mental health coaches back in the day dr alan lands he mentioned that was you know, very controversial when he was uh, on the Mets staff because of some of the drug and alcohol abuse and some of the feelings that, you know, he may be infiltrating the clubhouse with his opinion. He's a healthcare professional. You know, that's basically what he was. And he was looked at like, what is this guy all about? Why is he talking to the players? You know, that old school, hey, this is my clubhouse. Why are you talking to my players? You know, not knowing that the players needed somebody as a sounding board that was unbiased. You know, also think about it. He works for the team. So there's a certain amount of leap of faith you have to take with something like that. So a lot more you could get into about this stuff, not for this show. But uh, I think uh, I really appreciate Bill coming on. I know he does Mets Fantasy Camp. I know that he uh, uh, he does pitching lessons. So if you're out on Long Island, I mean, I guess you could hit him up. I don't know. I didn't ask him to tell anybody. I should have asked him how to tell him that. But uh, I'm sure you could hit him up on Twitter or something like that. So away you go. Um, anyway... So what's next? I mean, obviously, as the week goes on, Subway Series, we will, um, um, you know, we'll see what the deadline brings. If there's a big deal that causes us to have an emergency podcast, we'll be there covering it. I don't think you're going to see anything up until literally the deadline for a variety of reasons. I think the Mets want to vet out their possibilities of making the postseason. And I also think that as you get closer to the to the the deadline, teams blink. Now, I don't think Yuri Perez is on the next flight over to New York for Pete Alonso, but who knows what a Robertson or a Fam or somebody who a team thinks is a piece that could really elevate them to the next level could get. Look what Robertson, was it Ben Brown that the Cubs got for Robertson, who's impressing? Uh, and I remember people were mad that the Mets didn't get Robertson. Well, that was the kind of prospect. Everybody said they needed to give up a Matt Allen type of prospect to get Robertson last year. Seems like Ben Brown's that guy. So we'll see. Is there a Larry Anderson for Bagwell deal out there? Is there a Fernando Tatis Jr. for James Shields deal out there? Hard to make those deals, especially as we get further along into the era of minor league teams and the players and their you know prospects being hyped and being put out there into the mainstream, which makes it political to trade them too. Remember that. So a little bit harder to make those deals, but they could be out there. And let's see what the Mets scouting department could do. Let's see what Billy Epler could do. And uh, right now, what you're looking at is, is there a way for the Mets to continue to be entertaining the rest of the year, maybe stay on the peripheral of the wild card, and improve the team for 2024? Because it's clear, listening to the reports, as they decide whether or not they're going to trade Verlander and Scherzer, that they um, you know, have the ability and a realistic chance of replacing the, the the assets that they give up at the deadline next year because they want to win in 2024. So, especially in the three wild card scenario, you, you're the very low bar to make the postseason and get in the tournament. All right, I want to thank everybody for joining me on this latest edition, part two 
of the Talking Mets podcast. I want to thank Bill Pulse for, for taking time out of his weekend to join us. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And just show an Apple Podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You can get me on Instagram, no G. And of course, I want to thank the good folks for the fan sided podcasting network for their support of the show. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. Buckle up. Subway series, trade deadline, big week ahead. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. For the